and we had taken a quick detour to talk about the Beatitudes, and then that turned into a sermon series, so we're hopefully not going to do it verse by verse with this, but we're going to be talking about James chapter 3 in particular, and for the few of those who are absolute scholars among us, what did we talk about as to the main point of what James was trying to illustrate, what James was trying to accomplish here, and what the main point of the book of James was? What was the main point of the book of James? Reminding people of the the source. I heard it. The source. Remember the source. And that's the entirety of the book of James, because James is talking to a group of people that have been going through persecution. People who have been scattered to who knows where. They've been removed from their homes, all because of their faith. And so James is trying to illustrate to them, remember the source, keep that in mind, because you're going to need it. Because remembering the source is going to do several things. It's going to promote unity. It's going to increase your strength. It's going to remind you how to face temptations. It's also going to help you not cause divisions among yourselves. And we're going to get to chapter 3 where it's going to keep your tongue in check. Going to keep your tongue in check. This is something that it's... If, if you take five minutes to look online of any kind, you're going to find a host of people who don't know how to control their mouth. <laughs> don't know how to keep that under control. They'll say whatever comes to their head, and nine times out of ten, it ain't worth saying in the first place. <laughs> but you'll see a lot of people, that that's just their mindset. I'm just going to say anything. And they will say the most off-the-wall things. I was talking to a group of teenagers one time when I was in South Arkansas, and I asked them, I said, how many of you have TikTok? Well, every one of them raised their hand. I said, how many of you watch Christian people on TikTok? And all of them raised their hand. I said, how many of you have heard some of the wildest things you've ever thought you would hear on TikTok? And they all raised their hands again. I said, makes sense, right? (laughs) Makes sense. A lot of people like to just talk about things that have no basis in fact. Maybe they heard it from granny who knows where. Uh, One of my favorites that I heard was that Cain was actually the son of the devil. Yeah, that one was... And I mean biological son, by the way. Uh, that's, that's what that person said. That's wild stuff. But you hear that kind of stuff all over the place. And people then wonder why Christians are viewed as crazy people. <laughs> well, because I, I illustrate it this way. I said, do you have a crazy cousin? Yeah. Someone can have your last name. That doesn't mean you want them to be a part of your family. <laughs> but... That's how a lot of people treat it. They don't control their tongue. They don't control what they say. And that can be either what they teach, how they act, what they say, just in general. And so the James chapter, or James chapter three in particular, that's really the crux of what James is describing is this idea of controlling the tongue. So if someone could just go ahead and read starting in verse one, and we'll just read verse one for now. All right, for those who have not been in my classes before, just for clearing the air, I love to have conversations. I love to have input and questions because that helps me as the teacher to know where y'all are, know how long we need to last on a point and things of that nature. So if you have questions, if you have comments, be sure to bring those up. That really helps the class to go along and helps us to get the most out of this. But starting in verse 1 here, we're talking about being not many masters, King James Version, teachers, New King James Version, Be not many masters, knowing you shall receive the greater condemnation or stricter judgment, New King James. Why is he making this point? Should we not want to be teachers? Should we not want to show people? Why why would he make this statement? 
not take it lightheartedly. That's, that's really the main point here. We're not taking this lightheartedly. Is it fun to talk about the Bible? Is it fun to interact with Christians and discuss the Bible? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great. We're all on the same page for the most part, and we might have some disagreements, but we can look at the Bible and come to an understanding. That's fun. That's energetic. But we should never take it lightly. We should never take it lightly, because what we talk about from God's Word is taking His words. And if I take what God said and I change it to just whatever I want it to be, what am I saying to God? What am I saying to God if I take His Word and I make it what I want it to be? I'm more important. important. What you say doesn't matter as much as how I think it should be. That's a difficulty that a lot of people struggle with, but it's not something that's new. It's definitely not something new. We can look throughout uh, 2 John in particular, and we can see examples of someone who liked to have the preeminence, liked to have their say over God's say. We see other examples throughout scriptures of people who tried to say, well, this is what God says, but, I mean, I'm reminded in particular, Jeroboam. He said, oh, the people are going south to worship. I don't like this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to add two more places of worship, one in the highest part of Israel and one in the southernmost part of Israel. And you can just go there at your own convenience. Even though, what did the old law say? You go where to worship? Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem at that time? Southern kingdom. It's in the southern kingdom of Judah. So what Jeroboam was telling God was, hey, here's what you said. I don't care. This is what I want. This is what's good for my nation. I'm the king, so I'm going to do this. A lot of people have done that even with churches. They said, here's what God said we should do, but if we do it this way, we'll get more people. But if we do it this way, then we'll have more fun. But if we do it this way, you see how this tends to work? The reality is the church is not a social club. Is there a social element to it? Yes, absolutely. But it's not a social club. We don't change the doctrines of the church. We don't change the structure of the church. We don't change the name of the church for marketing purposes. We don't change any of that to have a bigger crowd or to have flashier equipment, or to have flashier lights, or things of that nature. That's not what we do. He's describing being on many masters, knowing you shall receive the greater condemnation, because if I am up making a statement to someone, if I'm teaching someone and I teach them falsely, is it just their soul, or just my soul that matters there? I can lead someone else astray. Remember how Jesus described it when you put a stumbling block before someone? It's better that a millstone were cast about or, cast, or put around your neck and you were cast into the sea. That's a pre, that, that's about as dead as you can get. I, I don't know how many of you have actually like been around a millstone or I remember when I was about 11 years old, we went up to I think Townsend was where it was and there was a millstone out there and my little 12 year old self thought I was Superman and thought I could lift that millstone. The pain was not good. <laughs> it was, but it was dumb of me to think that. How can I lift that? But when we are taking other people's souls into thought here, when I'm trying to keep them in mind and I'm not taking it lightly, as was mentioned, I'm going to be as serious as I can be about it when I illustrate, when I talk about the Word of God. Also added to that, if I'm taking it seriously, will I accept correction? Yes. 
If I'm taking the Word of God seriously and I teach something that's false, like if Larry or Don or one of you come up and say, hey, here's what the Bible says about this, and you said something that doesn't quite line up with this, what should my responsibility be? I'm sorry, I'll fix it. That was wrong of me. That's the attitude that all Christians should have, but that is primarily under this position of humility, understanding that I'm not going to have everything perfect. I'm not going to be the end-all, be-all of the Word of God. This is how a lot of people get tripped up, though, is they tend to think, well, I've put X amount of study into the Bible, or I have X letters after my name, and therefore I know more about the Bible than you. You might know more about the literary aspect of the Bible than me. I'll grant you that. But if I know how to live based on the Word of God, if I understand where God has told me to do X or Y, and I'm following after that, then that's not necessarily true. You do realize there's non-Christian experts in the Bible, right? And I mean genuinely not even claiming to be Christian. They're just people who have studied the Bible, who know the books inside and out, know the structure, know the history that's described in it. They know the literary aspects. But there's people all over this world, and especially all over this country, that would fall head over heels just to listen to what that guy has to say about the Bible. You see how there's some, there's some flaw there? There's some issue there? And what God is saying here is if you're going to be teaching about the Word of God, you better take that seriously. Because you're doing more than just talking about a book. You're talking about the very God-inspired Word. So he's trying to illustrate this to these people. He says, first of all, brethren, be not many masters, knowing you shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, for those who have this in your Bibles, what's the heading of this chapter? Just name the heading in your, in your Bible. What's the heading of this chapter? Untamable tongue. That's what mine says too. Untamable tongue. So the first thing he's describing with this whole main point, because remember we described how James breaks this up and how his points do help support each other, but they're talking about different topics. And so the beginning of this is the untamable tongue, and the very first thing he talks about is teaching. It's the very first thing. Because we can make mistakes, we can have slips of the tongue and things of that nature, but this is far more serious. Because how we teach the Word of God is of eternal importance. It's not just a, oh, I messed up and I said that this team won when this team did. It's not just a slip of the tongue. It's not just I flew off of the handle. This is actually taking someone's soul and leading them away from God, literally doing the devil's job for him. So this is serious. It's something to keep in mind. So in taking this thought here, we see how even in the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament in particular, we were talking about in the sermon this morning about the Pharisees for instance. The Pharisees started off with noble intentions. Genuine, noble intentions. Because at the time, this was the fall of Alexander the Great's empire, it broke up into four different parts, and one of the parts that controlled the area of Israel was the Seleucid Empire. And the leader of the Seleucid Empire had begun to remove all types of Jewish worship. In fact, he turned the temple into a temple for Zeus. Now, if you're a Jew and your country's been conquered, and your religion has been outlawed, and the very place that you used to worship is now being used to sacrifice unclean animals to a false god, what's your attitude going to be? Probably pretty steamed, right? Pretty upset. And in fact, at this period of time, there was a priest who was refusing to do what the leaders of his day were telling him to do, and so much so that he unintentionally at the moment started a civil war. He refused to make a sacrifice, 
ended up with a few people dying, and next thing you know, there's a war. And during that war, they were describing that they were trying to bring Israel, it was a patriotic war, trying to bring Israel back. And during this period of time, there were two different sides. There was the military side, and then there was the religious side. That religious side said, we want to bring back the old law. We want to understand it better. We want to bring it back into prominence. And who was that group? What later would become the Pharisees. Noble intentions. Trying to focus back on the law of God. Now, what they ended up doing was, in their own words, they tried to build a hedge around the word of God. We're going to make so many laws that by the time you break all of our laws, you will have never gotten to the old law yet. (laughs) That's a bit crazy. I'm going to make all these different man-made laws to make sure that if you break my man-made laws, you're not actually breaking the old law. Better safe than sorry mentality. Gone to the extreme. But this is what Jesus was dealing with in his day and age. Now, also beyond this point, specifically around more James' time, we had people that were trying to bring back the old law even in Christianity. They said, well, you have to be circumcised. You have to offer sacrifices. You have to go to synagogue. You have to do all these different things in order to be accepted by God. Now, if you're a Gentile Christian, you're new to Christianity, that might not sound far-fetched. And you can be led astray by that. Paul fought that constantly. Even describing himself that he honestly was tempted to do that at times. So he was very staunch against it, saying this is not going to happen. So James is illustrating this first of all. If you're a group that is scattered to the four winds, you're barely trying to hold together as it is, and now you've got somebody trying to teach some sort of crazy doctrine coming about, what kind of damage can that do? Unimaginable, right? If you're a group of people who are just trying to follow after the Word of God and someone's trying to take power, take control, or trying to spread all kinds of crazy ideas in this worship setting, it can cause divisions, and that's the last thing that's needed right now. That's the last thing that's needed under these circumstances. They needed to grow. They needed to teach. They needed to spread the Word of God, not other things. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul described how he was... He marveled that they were so soon removed from what they had taught them before into another gospel. He said, which is not another. This was a common issue. We think it's rampant today. It was just as rampant back then. It was just as rampant back then. So much so that even in 2 Corinthians, we read that there were people claiming to be apostles. They said, oh yeah, you, you like Paul? You like Peter? James, John, all them? Yeah, we're apostles too. In fact, we're such good apostles that we're better than even Paul. Now, you think about how crazy that is just starting off. They're just trying to follow the Word of God and just trying to establish the Lord's church in the first century, which was a difficult thing as is. And the devil wasn't giving them a break. He wasn't saying, oh, well, you know, you're just a startup. He understands how powerful even a small group of people can be with the Word of God. And he did not want that even getting off the ground. So there were constant divisions. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul described the divisions that were taking place. He said he heard from those of the household of Chloe that there were contentions among you. So much so they were saying they were preacher followers. Well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. He said, uh, that's not how this works. We follow after what Christ taught. We follow after the Lord. But we're not following after preachers. In fact, he said, I'm thankful I baptize none of you save for a few. Paul emphasized this is not about me. This is about the Word of God. So again, James is is illustrating this point. First off, don't 
give way to false teaching. Don't allow that. And those of you who are tempted to teach things that are against God, know there's a serious penalty. There's a serious penalty for this. So let's go on now to verse... Let's look at verses 2 and 3. If someone could pick that up, please. All right, now, leading into this thought, before we go directly into this, are there any comments or questions that anyone has and would like to bring up with relation to the first verse? Nothing at all. Going once, going twice. All right, starting in verse 2. Here, James again describes this, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. We're all going to make mistakes, right? That's all going to happen. I will say something I shouldn't have said. I will act in a way maybe I shouldn't have. I may act too rashly on something that I shouldn't. That's going to happen more likely than not. In fact, he described that. He said, any man who does not do this is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Now, how do we know that that can't be the case? Nobody's perfect. I see a lot of mouths moving. I can't hear all of them. (laughs) But no one's going to be perfect save who? Christ Jesus. He was the only one who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and acted as the Savior of the whole world. If it were the case that we could be perfect on our own, what would be the consequence of that? We wouldn't have needed a sacrifice in the first place. In fact, beyond that, we would not even need to follow God. Well, how can you say that? If God is eternal good, and I can be eternal good, that means I'm a God. That's what that is. I'm putting myself in the place of the Lord under those circumstances. And there were a lot, there's a lot of people throughout history who have claimed to be perfect. I've never made a mistake. Everything I say is wonderful. And then they end up on the news for an FBI raid later on. I mean, that's how a lot of this works. People sin. People make mistakes. Some people go so far as to try to bring others into it as well and cause serious problems. But you and I, as Christians, the fundamental step of Christianity is first of all, understanding I have a need. Remember we talked about that a few weeks or two or a week ago with the sermon, saying that we understand our need for God. If we're poor in spirit, we understand we are humble enough to acknowledge I am not good enough on my own. All the good that I can do, it's filthy rags before God. I can't be good enough to earn my way to heaven. Now, a lot of people like to take that idea there and say that, well, no, you can't earn your way to heaven, which means that everything that happens is the work of God. That does not mean that we can't be obedient. Just because I make mistakes does not mean that I will not be faithful. 
Again, I use the illustration that's been used probably countless times before me and will be used thousands of years after me. If you're in a marriage relationship, are you going to make mistakes? Are you going to say something to her on that wrong day? Are you going to do something on that wrong day? It's going to happen. Now, after that first fight, that relationship's over, it's done, never going to fix this, this is all over, right? For some people it is, but for those who are actually trying to do it right, no. The relationship's not severed just because I slipped up. We regroup, we fix it, we move on, right? That's how a lot of this works. It's no accident that God described the relationship of the church to Him as a marriage. That's not an accident. In fact, you think about all the comparisons that are here. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, right? That's how he described it. Okay. The only separation for marriage is what? Only biblical reason for separation of marriage? What was it? Adultery. Leaving the relationship. Cheating on that, on that spouse. Following after another. Literally breaking the relationship. What is the only thing that separates us from God? Just one word. Sin cheating on God, walking away from Him. That's the separation. Now, I can make a mistake and I can make it right. First John chapter 1, verse 9, right? I can make that right. I can keep the relationship going. But if I say, I'm done with you, I prefer the world, that's a separation of that relationship, right? I've broken it. Now, I can eventually come back because Christ is always willing to bring those back to Him who are willing to come to Him. But in that moment, I've severed the relationship. Also beyond that, a husband is supposed to provide for the wife, correct? Provide for the family. God provides for the church. The needs that are there. What is it, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What was he referring to there? Just shout out some ideas. What was, what was he referring to there? Anybody remember the context of that? Specifically, he was talking about them going into the world. They were teaching people. Well, specifically, he was referring to food, raiment, and shelter. The things that you need to survive, right? It's always interesting to me how people are like, you know, I can't understand how people lived back in the day without A.C., or how on earth could people live back in the day without loaf bread that you can buy at the store? You can survive off of much less than you think you can. It can happen. People have done it. God has promised that we will always have the things that we need, not necessarily the things that we want. But He's going to provide what we need to move forward, what we need to do His will. Specifically, let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 6. And if someone could start reading, let's start reading in verse 28 and go to verse 32. And why take ye thought away? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They own not, neither do they speak. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory 
Wherefore, as God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye need of all these things. Okay, so what was he referring to there now? What is he describing as the main point here? He's describing the value of what? Content and focus on the proper things, absolutely. And the value of you. The value of the individual. In James chapter 1, verse 17, God, or Jesus, or James specifically through here, describes that we are considered a first fruits of his creatures. The best that God ever made. Now we might look at that and look at the world around us and say, how on earth can that be the case? But that's what God views each individual soul as. You have value. Each individual has value. And he says, because you have value, because God takes care of the lilies of the field, as he described it, how much more, it's a rhetorical question there, he's saying, if he takes care of that, do you not think he's going to take care of the best of his creatures? That's the way that it works. He's going to take care of that. And so, because he's willing to take care of that, as Larry pointed out, therefore, be content and focus on the proper things. Focus on the things that are important. It's easy for us to compromise when we're scared. That's really the main point of James, remember? These people would have been terrified under their circumstances. He's saying, remember the source. Why? This is a scary time to be alive. Remember the source. Keep that in focus. Keep prepared. Now, verse 3 in particular of James chapter 1 he says, Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turned their whole body. Now, verse 4 in particular as well. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Why would James go into this illustration talking about bits and rudders? What was he trying to illustrate there? Okay, self-control. It's a good one to bring up with this particular point. What else? What was it? Proportion. Proportion. That's a good one as well because we're trying to illustrate here, again, what's the subject matter we're talking about? Main heading? The tongue. The tongue is the main point. And so he's trying to illustrate proportions. If you think about modern-day ships... Some of the largest that you can picture. The largest I can think of is an aircraft carrier. That's the largest that I've ever seen, and it was bigger than a condo building, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. But that's how large these things are. But when you sail around to the back of that ship and you can see the rudder, how big is that rudder in comparison to the rest of the ship? Not that big. Now, it's huge to you. It's still bigger than you. But it is big enough that it can turn that whole ship just by one little adjustment. The reality is, how big is our body compared to our tongue? 
very large compared to the tongue. But our tongue has the capability to determine the entire future of that body. Think about how incredible that is. Now that can be for good or for evil. Using our tongue can be valuable or it can be detrimental. It's important for us to determine that factor, determine which side it's going to be. So he's illustrating this point that the bit in the horse's mouth, a slight adjustment, and I can turn that whole horse. Ships on the, or the rudder on the ship, slight adjustment, and I can change the ship's whole course. So just as he's describing that, he says, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things, has great potential, again, for good or for evil. And we're going to see how that point comes to bear in verse 6. He says, see how a great forest, how great a forest a little fire kindles, this latter part of verse 5. And for those of us who, I'm sure many of us probably remember that. You remember the Gatlinburg fires a few years ago? How did that start? A couple kids playing a matches up on a hilltop, right? I, we went up there not that long after the fires took place, and it looked like a war, a war zone. It looked like bombs had gone off in Gatlinburg. Just a little tiny fire burned that whole mountain. The same thing is true for us. The things that we say, no matter how small they are, are important. They are important. Because they have the ability not only to determine our own future, but as we talked about in verse 1, they have the ability to determine the future of others as well. So it's important that we take it under consideration. You ever heard someone say the point that you can apologize for a statement, but you can never take it back? Once it's said, it's gone. It's gone. If I make that post on Facebook, if I make that post on Instagram, I can apologize for it, but it's out there. It's spread to the four corners of the world. There's no taking it back. That's why it's important that we do prevention more than control. Exactly, exactly. That's why we need to be slow to speak. That was in James chapter 1, right? Slow to speak, slow to wrath. We've got to be swift to hear. That's how God has described these things. Not because He's like, your, your opinion isn't important. Don't talk about your opinion. Sometimes it is. But the point He's making here is that we're trying to prevent the damage done. The tongue is considered untamable because it is the quickest to act. Question, is it harder to say something wrong or do something wrong? I, I see mouths moving. I hear some whispers. Do something. It's harder to do something. Why? Requires more parts, right? When it's my tongue, brain to mouth, and it's said. When it comes to actions, I have to control the rest of my body. <laughs> I have to be in a situation. I have to be around certain people. I have to act in a certain way. It takes a lot more forethought, which means a lot more time to reconsider your actions. But with the tongue, right through, and it's said. That's why he's illustrating the, the power and the speed of this. This is the, the danger of this ability. So let's look at verse 6. Someone can read verse, verses 6 through 8. 
is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Okay. So with this in particular, talking about the tongue, the damage of the tongue, the abilities of the tongue, what are, what are some examples, either from Scripture or from real life, of how quickly the tongue can cause damage? Maybe history examples, biblical examples. What are some examples of how just the tongue lit something up? Go ahead. And that's something that we have to be careful with as well because of passages like 1 Corinthians 15.33. Evil communications corrupt good morals. How we, how we portray ourselves, of course, is not the most important thing, but it has importance. Obviously, if someone's going to try to say something negative about us, they're going to say it. It's just going to happen. You're not going to be able to stop everything. However, we are told we're to live blamelessly, Correct. We're to live in such a way that nothing that people say can stick to us. Under that circumstance, if I'm sharing something and I'm allowing someone else to speak for me, which is what that situation is, there's a danger to that, right? There's a danger to how we spread that. That goes even to 1 Corinthians or Romans chapter 14. How we portray things, and the even let's just say for a moment that we're talking about. Well, let's say that we're illustrating something from the Bible, but I use an atheist to do it. And I just share with this, athe- this atheist whole speech and say, well, there's a part at this thumbnail that's really good. To some people, that might not be a serious thing. Because they understand, okay, I'm just looking for this one part. I can ignore the rest of this. I'm not going to listen to it, all this kind of stuff. But let's talk about someone who maybe is a new Christian. Is there a danger to sending that to them? Because maybe they don't recognize that I'm saying I don't condone what this guy is saying as a whole. I don't condone this guy or I don't agree with what he's saying, but this particular point is useful. When, pe- when preachers get up and present sermons, 
have you heard sermons before where someone's used an illustration from someone that maybe wasn't a member of the church, wasn't a Christian, maybe a historical figure, maybe even an evil historical figure? But they used something they said that had value to the illustration, right? Do I get up and use as an illustration just preach an entire speech from Hitler? <laughs> no, that'd be dumb, right? <laughs> be ridiculous. Because that's not valuable. I can look at something he says and I can compare that and say, here's the evil of it. But what I say has merit. It has importance in discussions with people. Because I can accidentally lead someone astray. That's very possible. One of the things I think really disturbs me when I get online is OMG. I hate to see that, and I see so many Christians putting that online. And that's taking the Lord's name in vain, taking it in an empty way. I just do not like to hear that or see that online at all, especially with a Christian. It is. It's a frustrating thing just to be online, right? You can look around, you'll find. If you can think it up, it's there. I don't care how dark a nightmare or how great a dream it is, you can find it online. It's going to be there. And it's a frustrating thing, especially when you see Christians that act in certain ways that are not Christ-like. We can find examples constantly. And if we sat here long enough, we could probably come up with a billion different examples of things that are taken wrong, said wrong, put out in a certain way that's going to cause problems. And that's a serious thing. We tend to have keyboard courage, right? Man, if we're behind a computer screen and that person's not standing directly in front of us, man, I can light that guy up. (laughs) But if he was standing right in front of me, I would never dare to say what I just put on the computer screen. Our words are important. And we can even have good intentions to them as well. Even good intention phrases, good intention statements can cause problems. So that's why it's important that we take the time to consider our words and the consequences of them. Go ahead, Cleet. It is, and it's, if we really are questioning why the world is the way it is right now, you can tie that directly to the family structure. You can tie that exactly to it. If you see that, you see how the world is as a whole, we see that there's people that are just running amok, there's people who do not have self-control, people who do not act in a proper way. It comes, first of all, by not being taught by not teaching them a proper way to act or a proper way to be. And we just say, well, you can do whatever you want, and it's fine, it's it's all good. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10 where he says, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? How are they supposed to know if they're not taught? He emphasizes the importance of going out to them. You had somewhere? Book out of class, and let people take that home with them, and get put on the shelf or on the table, 
it's motivational type or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, but it's used at church to carry home. And then people get that and they look that author up and they order another book by the same author. And it's errors and it's difficult and it softens the mind of a Christian to these ideas. So that's that's why we have somebody like Cleve with over education that fil- filters through this material and puts it before us and we know it's good. And even though a book might be a good solid book, it's by a denominational person we won't use it for that reason. Mm-hmm. My, one of my favorite descriptions I've heard from someone uh, about how certain people study the Bible is he said, most people have the memory of a goldfish. We, we look at a verse and we say, oh, that's great. That's awesome. And we'll look at that example and we'll say, yeah, that makes total sense. Makes total sense based on that. And then we'll go listen to another guy and he'll talk about the same verse and he'll give a different description. Like, yeah, that makes so much sense. That's great. That's awesome. It's, they forgot what they just studied beforehand. <laughs> They forgot the description that was made. I can make a compelling case from this position right here about a verse and can make it say something it doesn't say to you. I can give you that impression. When we were in school, we had debate, and one of I was the one that picked error because I thought it would be easy. It was not easy. But I took the position of error, and my point was we were trying to prove that once saved, always saved is taught in the Scriptures. And so I would go to all kinds of examples in Scripture, and I would just basically change the context. I never changed the wording. I never would change what the Bible said, but I would change your impression of what the Bible said. That's how a lot of people act. They'll read the Bible right in front of you. They'll read it exactly for what it says, and you can say, well, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly what it says. All I've got to do is tweak a few things. Remember how the, how the serpent tricked Eve? How many words did he change? One word. That's all it was. One word. They'll read Acts 2.38 over and over again, and they tell you that the Greek word is changed. Something you'll never look at, more than likely. Most of us are not Greek scholars, I can assure you. I took Greek at Memphis, and I'm no Greek scholar. <laughs> I can read a little bit. That's it. But a lot of people like to take those statements, and they say, well, this is what it means. This is the context of it. And they'll just change little tiny things. That's why this is so important that we take these under consideration and that we're careful not only with what we teach, but what we allow ourselves to listen to as well. Because, again, 1 Corinthians 15.33, evil communications corrupt good morals. That's why he took this position so seriously, why James is constantly describing the tongue and why, as we're going to go throughout the rest of this, probably periodically, I'm not, we'll probably pick this up on Wednesday nights now the summer series is over, but we'll, we'll take a little bit more detail here and we'll discuss in greater depth as to why James is talking about the tongue, the importance of it, and the seriousness of the consequences of it. 
Thank you all for your comments, for your questions, and it is now time to go to lunch.